Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in to the SNR Proudcast. As always, I'm your host, John Brummer. And I'm Mallory Wilson. And uh, we have a really exciting episode coming up for you guys. We sat down recently with uh, City Supervisor um, or Board of Supervisor member and commercial real estate broker, Brad Bonkowski. Now, Brad is an incredibly interesting guy. He is both very experienced when it comes to the commercial aspect of real estate, but he's also very much tied with the planning process for Carson City. So the conversation features uh, a discussion about Tesla and uh, the way that commercial real estate is evolving here in Carson City, but then also what the growth and changes and challenges that are occurring in our community mean for those of us who are residents here. We also talked about uh, future developments. We talked a little. We touched a little bit about affordable uh, housing. We talked about um, what factors are affecting construction right now. We we talked about a lot in this in this interview. So I think it's going to be really interesting for everyone to to hear. Right on. So we hope you enjoy it. Uh, when you are finished listening to this podcast, we hope that you will like and subscribe to our channel. That you'll leave us any comments or feedback on the episode. Um, this is only the second episode that we've recorded, so we're always looking to improve. And uh, we really want your feedback on guests that we could bring in to discuss. Um, Ultimately, this podcast is designed to serve the realtors of Sierra Nevada Realtors, but also the communities that we realtors serve. So sit back, give a listen, and we hope you enjoy. So Brad, thanks so much for sitting down with us today. Um... So for those of us who don't know who you are, um, why don't you uh, introduce yourself to our audience first and then also kind of give us a little bit of a background of how you got into real estate, what made you want to become a realtor, and and, uh, we'll go from there. Great. Thanks, John. Thanks, Mallory. Um, So my name is Brad Bonkowski. I wear a lot of hats. Uh, First, I am a Carson City supervisor. Um, I joined... SNAR, which at that time was called, uh, oh my God, what was it? There were seven different names. It was it was like the when. Carson Minden, Tahoe, Fernley. Fallon, right, mm-hmm. way back when. And uh, president of the association in 2007, uh, realtor of the year for SNAR in 2002 and 2007. So I know the association. Um, no, all of the old-time members don't recognize some of the people that are there now. Uh, but I also own or am co-owner of a commercial-only franchise in town, NAI Alliance. So we do uh, building sales and leasing and property management. And I originally got into real estate in 1995 because I bought my first house in 1986, and it was a very bad experience for me. I didn't feel like I had a good realtor, and at the time, I thought that the only way that I would learn how to um, to work through a, a transaction properly would be to educate myself uh, as to how real estate works. So I went out, went to real estate school, and found out, as all of us know now, that real estate school only teaches you how to pass the exam to get your <laughs> license. So once you get your license, you actually have to learn the business. So in 1995, I hung my license with Terry Yeager at, at, at Carson Properties. Gotcha. Uh, and did commercial only there, uh, although I did sell houses when I was at her office as well. Uh, but 
just worked from there. I worked um, at the time I owned several photo labs in Incline Village, Carson City, and Reno. And so I did both. I worked at, at Terry's office, plus ran the labs. I sold the labs in 1998 and started working full-time in real estate. So I guess you, like a lot of people, ended up turning to real estate as a almost as a second career, that it wasn't really what you first started out with, but you, you fell into it out of a curiosity or a love and then kind of went from there. That's correct. And for me, it was actually a third career. I started out... Uh, my working career as uh, as a printer, an offset printer, and from there went into the photo labs, and then from there went into real estate. Awesome. Now, for the listener's sake, how would you describe the difference between residential and commercial, just because you're a commercial-only agent? Right. There are two completely different worlds. There's really not a lot of similarities. The language is different. The transactions are different. Uh, the forms are different. Uh, and that's, uh, to be honest with everybody out there, that's why we left the local association and state association, uh, because we had a lot of difficulty, especially when we went to a regional MLS system, that the MLS forms did not work for commercial transactions. And so at the time, we had over 200 listings, and we were facing... MLS fines on every listing because we couldn't make their forms work. So at the time, we just made a decision to uh, to leave MLS and the uh, local and state associations altogether. Gotcha. So where do you guys mostly advertise your properties? Uh, we go direct to other commercial brokers and then also through LoopNet. And now the new platform that everybody's transitioning to is a, a platform called Crexy. Gotcha. So there's got to be, because I know in the, on the residential side of things, we're kind of beset on all sides by third parties that are trying to come into the business. Zillow, um, Trulia, you know. Redfin. Redfin, yeah, to, to name a few. So that's got to be a really nice feeling, because I know that's how it used to be, you know, back in the day. If you had a real estate listing, you contacted other realtors. And that was sort of your job as the realtor is to find, like, identify the property that the person was was interested in purchasing and then go from there. Yeah, that's actually a great comment, John, because that's another difference between commercial real estate and residential real estate. The, the barrier to entry in residential real estate is actually pretty low. It's not that difficult to get your license and get into the business. You hang your license at any brokerage. In commercial, you really need, I would say, close to five years of reserves to be able to make it in commercial real estate. And I know that doesn't sound realistic, sure. but it actually is, and we've seen it happen over and over. If you don't, if you don't work for another agent as, a, as an assistant or a mentor in a mentor situation or as an apprentice, it's very difficult to make it in commercial real estate because the transactions are fewer and far between, even though they're much bigger transactions. Sure. Well, and I think that that is sort of where a lot of people, because, you know, I get asked a lot, how do I get involved in real estate? It seems like it'd be a great career. And especially, you know, as, as realtors, we always hear the same thing, like from those people who are looking to become realtors. Uh, it seems like it's an easy payday. I know that I paid the commission on my, the sale of my home and it was, you know, a crazy amount of money. That money could be going into my pocket. Why don't I get my real estate license? Five years of reserves, I, I don't think is weird if you're starting up your own small business, 
But for whatever reason, people don't think about getting a real estate license and starting a career as a realtor like I'm starting up a small business. They think about it like, I'm just going to get this license and start selling, almost like a, the car business. Like, I just need to find a place to sell houses. They, yeah, they look at it as a, as a second um, job yeah, or yeah. You know, something that's going to really provide them additional spending money. Right. And the fact is that like any business, if you want to be successful, you have to take it seriously and treat it like a business. Exactly. And that's one of the reasons why realtors consistently get low levels of approval from the public is because generally speaking, many realtors don't treat it like a business. Right, right. And I think it's very easy to fall into the trap of, I want to do this part-time. And I think there's a huge difference between treating something seriously and treating it part-time. Like, I, mean, I think you can do both. I think you can be serious and a part-time agent. But I think that in the very beginning, trying to establish yourself and trying to establish a reputation, I think that that's very difficult because as we see the industry changing, people are going to more of a full-service brokerage, like a full-service experience. Basically, if I text my agent at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I don't want to wait for them to have to get off work. I want an answer now. Like, I want that answer now. And I think that as that industry, as the industry starts to change, and it, maybe it feels like there's going to be less... This is just on the residential side, because from what you're saying, it sounds like virtually nobody in commercial real estate does it part-time. Would you say that's pretty fair? Have you I, dealt with... I don't know anybody in commercial that is successful and does it part-time. Uh, and it's an interesting comment that you just made. It would be another difference between residential and commercial. If you want to get a hold of your commercial broker, you're not going to hear back in five minutes. You're lucky if you hear back in one or two days, and that's pretty standard. Is that because the answer is a little more complicated and requires more research, or is that just sort of the industry standard? It's, it's a combination of several things. First, we work business hours. So we work Monday through Friday, 8.30 to 5 or 9 to 5. We don't work weekends. We don't work evenings. We don't work holidays. Most commercial brokers don't even work Fridays. Why would you say that is? Why have you set that precedent? Because we treat it as a business. So we have business hours. Gotcha. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's going to make a comment, too, um, regarding part-time work, I think it's very difficult to keep up with the market if you're only doing something part-time. I do too. Whether Mm -hmm. it's residential or commercial, but I think especially in residential because you have many more requirements that you have to comply with on the residential side. You have MLS forms. You have all the disclosures that residential agents use with the exception of the agency forms are not required on commercial properties. Gotcha. So we only are required to fill out the duties owed or consent to act or confirmation. What's that like? <laughs> that's kind of, that's, and that's it. We sounds like a, heaven. We have a contract <laughs> and an agency form, and that's it. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and I think piggybacking off of that, too, is is that I think that residential real estate, I think you, the transition is, is going to be started to be made that you have to, you can't do it part-time. I don't think you can do anything part-time. Nobody goes to see a part-time doctor. Like if your doctor was like, well, I just do this part-time and on the side, I'm like, you know, I don't know, a pool hustler or whatever. Like right. you're like, yeah, I'm good. I don't want to be right. at that doctor's office. If, so I think I would look at that and say, well, if you don't care enough about this career to do it full-time, then you probably don't care enough to do it right. 
just yeah. takes longer to gain the experience at that point. If you're doing less transactions per year, then you've just seen less seen less eventful transactions then. And yeah. you know, you're not keeping up, so you yeah. may you may not be providing appropriate service to your client at that point. You may well, be doing them a disservice. And between so Tesla came in, Apple came in one 2010 in in Dorino, right? Story County. Story County. Yeah. So and Tesla came in when like. Uh, Roughly the same time. Yeah, I think it was 2012 or 11. Okay. So the the area for us geographically has changed so dramatically mm-hmm. in those, you know, in 10 years. Northern Nevada, I know because when I moved away, it was 2008. And then I came back um, in 2016 and it was almost unrecognizable. And my brother, for years, when I was living in New York, he would send, he would tell me, he's like, dude, you got to come back. Like, Reno's changing. Like, Reno's, it's, you know, Reno's coming on the map. It's coming on the map. And I was like, um, okay. <laughs> but, but no, though. Like, so, but in that amount of time, things have changed so dramatically that I think if you were not up on all of the changes of what's happening right now, I mean, you'd be lost. That's, that's actually a great comment because Tesla is what changed the map. Right. And it wasn't an actual change as much as it was a perception. Yeah, I agree. So I agree. when Tesla came in, we in the commercial industry called it the Tesla effect. Yeah. They didn't do that much themselves because, of course, it isn't really Tesla. It's Panasonic. Right. But the Tesla name and Elon Musk specifically have this persona that they're miracle workers and that they can make anything happen and change the world. And, in fact, I think... They are changing the world, but it's everybody associated with them that actually make made the changes. And there's many players out in the Tahoe Reno Industrial Park that are bigger players than Tesla, but you don't hear about them, and they're not the ones that get all the credit. Right. So you look at Switch, right. Google, Apple, uh, Walmart. Um, it just goes on and on and on out there. Zulily, uh, Diapers Are Us. Um, and they're arguably more viable than Tesla as far as their long-term business plan. They are providing more of an economic impact than Tesla is, but Tesla got the incentives, Tesla has the name, and they have the perception. So what happened was that when Tesla landed in Story County, then we saw a wave of associated businesses that wanted to locate here because they were vendors of Tesla or Panasonic. And then we saw a second wave of companies that bought into the perception that Northern Nevada was the place to be. Right. So because Tesla came here and they did all this due diligence and they looked all over the country and they decided that this was the most business-friendly place to locate, other companies didn't do the same due diligence on their own and trusted the due diligence that Tesla did and decided to locate here because of that. So do you think there's a chance? Do you, would I've always had the suspicion that that entire Tahoe Reno Industrial Center, or what, what we kind of call the trick here, hinges on Tesla's success or failure. And that because of that perception. So if Tesla seems like they are succeeding in business in northern Nevada... It, I, be, I believe that everybody who is affiliated with Tesla or who, who came because they said Tesla's moving here, it's going to be a favorable business climate, is going to follow suit. Do you think that this, the same would hold true if 
Tesla wasn't able to make a viable product because I know they've been pretty tenuous for about two years now on whether or not they can actually produce. Right. The, the ability of Tesla to survive is going to be um, based on their ability to raise capital from investors. And I think investors are maybe not buying in to the Tesla story like they used to. Right. Having said that, Northern Nevada has evolved way beyond Tesla to the point that if Tesla fails, it's not going to have that big of an impact. Gotcha. So we're going to be okay. Nevada. We'll be fine. Yeah. And in fact, you can take that to a national scale where the economy nationally has slowed down to the point of almost stagnation. Right. So we're not in a recession, but we're almost stagnant on the, on the national ec- economic level. In northern Nevada, we're insulated because all these companies have moved here and created all these jobs, and they're continuing to create jobs. Even if we went into a recession, it would take probably a two- to three-year period for that recession's impact to actually hit northern Nevada. And we look at economic trending very carefully uh, all the time. And when you hear an economist say, we're good for another two years, or they may say three years, or they may five years, that's because you can't see out farther than that. So every year for five years, you may hear them say the same thing. Oh, it's two right. years. Oh, it's two years. Every year, you're right. getting the same story. But that's because you just can't see out farther than that. And that's what I would say right now is for the last five or six years, I've been saying, well, we're good for at least two more years. Which is and better was, than nothing. Yeah, and, and <laughs> I would say that today. We're good yeah. for at least another two years. Right. Even though things may slow down, we're not going to go into any kind of a recession in northern Nevada. Right, yeah, and which is, I think, very, I know at least on the residential side of, of things, that's very comforting to most of our buyers to feel like at least there's some insulation because of how hard northern Nevada was hit in the last time that we had a recession. How much of the the space that is the, the commercial dedicated space is being purchased and how much of it is being rented to these larger vendors? Uh, that's an interesting question because the larger vendors don't come to Carson City or really gotcha. south of Reno. Gotcha. So the difference in our markets between uh, our market, the rurals, and Story and Washoe County is that a big building here is a 50,000-square-foot warehouse. Right. In Reno, a 250,000-square-foot building is really considered like the bottom of the market. Wow. Mm-hmm. And so there's plenty of, you know, million square foot buildings in Reno and they're building them on spec. Like there's been one spec building here in Carson uh, of 20,000 feet since 2005. Did it did it lease years. immediately? Was half, <laughs> half of it is leased to the Salvation Army, so it's over on research. And then there's been a couple of build suits. So I think in all, there's been maybe four or five buildings built here in Carson uh, uh, Industrial in the last 14 years. Wow. And we're completely out of space. So normal in a normal market, you would expect with no supply that developers would come in and they would build the spec space. And that hasn't happened in this economic cycle because the rents haven't gone up fast enough to cover the debt service to on the building costs, the construction costs. Really? Are you foreseeing a spike in rents to, to catch up with that? You would think, um, same reason 
that you would think that with a lack of inventory, you would see builders come in and build spec space. You would also expect rents to go up quickly, and we haven't seen that either. So since 2012, which was the bottom of the market when rents stopped going down and started increasing again, it's just been a slow, steady increase, even though our expectations are that rents would skyrocket because of the lack of space. Would you say that that lack of space is kind of as a response to um, the Tesla effect, if you will, of all of these companies relocating to northern Nevada, or is it um, because of something completely separate? The market seems to have skipped over our size market. So logistically, with the opening of the 580 to Carson City, it's an 18-minute drive from Reno to Carson now. So logistically, it doesn't make any difference to a company to locate in northern Carson City. Right. But they're choosing to locate in Washoe County mainly because there's more workers available. And so workforce is a huge issue for manufacturers. Makes sense. And there's no workforce available in Carson City or very little. And what there is uh, available here is not qualified. So they need to be retrained. So, you know, and they're looking for bigger spaces. So, again, we have the smaller spaces. We really specialize in manufacturers that are 5 to 30 employees and in that 5,000 to 25,000 square foot space. And that segment of the market has not flourished in this economic cycle. The small businesses have been hurt and kind of passed over, and it's the big corporate manufacturing businesses that are expanding and coming to this area. And that's, that's Washoe and Story County. Do you feel like there's been um, sort of a recent increase in uh, training efforts by WNC or by um, NNDA um, to get, you know, to get more training for these, you know, manufacturing companies that are in Carson? Right. And Mal, as you know, I've worked with NNDA for many years. And I think it's eight or nine years ago now, they started a workforce uh, training program with Western Nevada College. So that is now in its eighth or ninth year, and they will design curriculum specifically for a manufacturer, which is great. But they're graduating classes of, you know, 20 or 30 people when we need hundreds of workers. Right. So it's a drop in the bucket towards what we need. So their program is high quality, and it is helping, and it's getting more traction every year. So they're graduating more people every year, but we don't have the supply to get bodies into the program to be retrained to then take the new jobs. Would you attribute that to a lack of affordable housing in Carson City? Uh, That has been an issue. Uh, We just completed uh, our vacancy study, which showed that multifamily has a vacancy rate in Carson City of 1.5%, meaning that it's just the the end-of-the-month turnover So you can't get a place to live in Carson City unless you know somebody or are at the top of the list. So it has had a huge impact on the ability for people to move here if they have a job. They have to move into Reno or Dayton or even farther out to be able to work here. Equilibrium for that multifamily uh, vacancy rate is probably closer to 5 or 6% somewhere in there? It would be in that, I would say, 5% range would be the where, equilibrium part where there's enough inventory for people to look and find what they want 
um, without causing rents to go up or down based on supply. Right. So one and a half percent is We're crazy. quite a ways <laughs> off. Yeah. Quite a ways off. Right. Yeah, How long a, has it been strong. around one percent? Um, I would guess for at least the last three or four years. Wow. So, and now I know obviously anybody who lives or works in and around Carson City has seen there's, uh, I think the Nevada appeal about a month ago, Carson now has been reporting on, on a lot more housing that's, that's coming into the area. How much, but, but I think basically you're working on a time crunch because I don't, I don't see any of those projects being completed in under two years. Well, yeah. I don't know that I agree with that. Mills Landing on Highway 50, right. they're well, about yeah. halfway through yeah. that project. The uh, the project that's on uh, Little Lane, uh, those they've started going vertical there. The Snyder Lane, the Ryder Homes down yep. on Snyder Lane, they're, yep. they're 75% of the way through that. The Tanamera Apartments down at the Fandango, um, they are, they'll be finishing up uh, the first, I think, four buildings there in just a couple of months. Yeah, they've uh, gone up. Those have gone up pretty quick. Right. So they're doing that different than the project at Sierra Summit, where they're right. building out all the buildings at the same time. Right. Tanamera mm-hmm. is going to build complete four buildings, get them leased, and then they'll bring in a second and third phase. So even though they're doing the dirt work and site work, gotcha. they're not going to build out the whole project at one time. Are those projects enough to relieve that pressure in the multifamily market? It, it's a start. It won't completely relieve it. And so all this circles back around to your original question, which was about affordable housing. And in my opinion, there is no such thing at this point in time as affordable housing. Construction costs have gone up so much that even lower end, what we would call workforce housing, right. is no longer affordable. Those right. units, like the Mills Landing units, those are starting at close to 300000 for an eleven to 1,200 square foot unit. Yeah. What are they renting for? Uh, I would guess that a unit of that size is going to rent in the probably thirteen to fifteen hundred dollar a month range. Okay. So it's not really affordable. The only no. way that I'm aware of that you can build what would be called affordable housing, which would be moderate to low income housing, is if there's government subsidies of some kind. Right. And in fact, Carson City is going to attempt to work on the first government-subsidized low-income or, or affordable housing project. Uh, now we're actually coming out with, uh, with a request for proposals uh, that should come out in the next couple of weeks, and we expect to have uh, proposals back sometime in October or November okay. where we have some city land over off of Bud Eye Lane that we will provide to a developer if they prove that they have the wherewithal to come in and to build an affordable housing project. And affordable housing, the legal term affordable housing, means that it's deed restricted and it has to meet certain criteria of the median income for a certain period of time, like 30 years or 50 years. So that's the actual definition of affordable housing. Gotcha. So for those of our audience who don't know what deed restriction is, can you talk about that just a little bit? Sure. What it means is that the builder developer actually is going to be restricted in that once they build it, it either has to be used for the intent, which is low-income housing at these certain criteria, or they would lose their funding and their tax-exempt status. Gotcha. So would there be, theoretically, a scenario in which a builder could pivot away from that status in order to make more money on the back end? Or would that be illegal? Well, 
I, I think legally they could do that, but then there would be some unintended consequences because they could be liable for the subsidies that they received. So in other words, if we're going to give them the land so that they can build this project and then they're not going to pay any property taxes on it because they're going to set up uh, a nonprofit. So if 10 years in they decide to go for profit, well, we're going to come back and we're going to try to claw back the property taxes. We're going to want to be reimbursed for the land. The state and federal governments are probably going to do the same. Gotcha. So although it may be legally possible to do it, I think there's enough restrictions in place that it wouldn't be economically feasible to do it. Gotcha. It would always be more worthwhile for that developer to just select a piece of land and just build right. a development just, on their own if that was their intention. Right, just start with another project. Right. 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 So do you? F- how many units will that project likely yield? I mean, approximately how much space is there? Well, per the zoning, I think the maximum number of units is about 160. Okay. But that doesn't mean that once you do site design that you can actually get 160 units in there. Right, right. So here's a question. Is there a scenario, or then have you guys uh, on the Board of Supervisors discussed a scenario in which all of this construction happens and, and is completed like within a short period of time, like say within a two-year window of each other, and what that's going to, the impact that that would have on the residential housing market. So for instance, if I'm getting ready to sell my house, or if I'm thinking about it in the next couple of years, naturally, real estate is, I think, one of the things I like about real estate is it's very much a supply and demand market. Could too much supply of housing sap away that demand, and now all of a sudden, uh, landlords who are charging what they're charging for rent? I mean, because it it is sort of a double-edged sword, right? You want property values to be maintained at a high level, because that's in the best interest of the property owner. But at the same time, you also want the affordability to be there with the housing so that the people who are looking to live in your community and work in your community and, you know, raise families in your community or retire in that community are able to stay there. But I think the word you're looking for is sustainability. Yeah. So you're looking for that balance between landlord, tenant, between, um, you know, property owner and and tenant, uh, that the overall market is sustainable. And right. in a normal market, um, you know, this, this has been such such a strange, strange market because it's like none of the economic policies of the past have applied to this cycle, and we're really kind of in uncharted territory. And and what we're seeing out there, we've never seen it before in in thirty or forty years. So you know, we're trying to work through these things. Your, your question was about supply. Normally, that would be the case, that all the supply would come on at once and it would oversaturate the market and that would drive values down. Right. The issue with today's market is because there's no workforce, that builders are constricted from building enough to oversupply the market. So you're not going to gotcha. see all these projects build out in a short period of time. Gotcha. They're being stretched out. What would normally be a one- or two-year project is turning into a four- or five-year project because you can't get crews to actually build it. So that's huge because that means that the market has somehow, not not somehow like accidentally, but somehow has found its own equilibrium. It that, has. That it's, yes. Which is, I think, is pretty... A, under the circumstances, is atypical. Because I know that when the, they ran the, the, the piece, and I think it was in Carson now, that said... Uh, you know, all of the different housing units that were coming on into the market in Carson City, you think the immediacy 
like within it's with a, and I'm great, sure you guys have got that it, from a yeah, lot of citizens. It, it's a like, great comment because what you're looking at is a list of entitled projects. So these are right. all the pri- projects that are somewhere in the entitlement phase. They've either been in front of planning or uh, in front of the board of supervisors, and so they either have partial or full entitlements. That doesn't mean that they're going to build those projects because you have developers who come in and get entitlements and then flip it to builders, or sometimes you'll have a builder developer that will build it all the way through. Lompa Ranch is a perfect example of that where you have a developer who came in and is getting the property entitled and then flipping portions of the property out to different builders. In this case, I think there's something around 24 or 2,500 approved uh, residential units plus commercial for Lampa Ranch. Gotcha. And who knows when and if it gets built. Gotcha. So just because you have 2,500 units approved doesn't mean that you're going to see those get built, and Silver Oak would be a perfect example of that, which was like 2,200 units total. Right, right. And that project started well over 20 years ago. Right. And is not built out yet. And I think from the public's eye, especially, and actually this is a, a great segue into something I wanted to talk to you about as well. I think the public perception, or more so than more so than any place that I think that I've ever lived, I think Northern Nevada has this really strong juxtaposition between the people who don't want anything to change, right? Like, I don't want you to change my trash service because I'm afraid that that might lead to X, Y, and Z. That's a whole different podcast. Right, okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, let's, let's, not get into, let's not get into that. But, like, I, I, you know, I mean, and I know, like, for the downtown project, like, I know, I know that you guys on the Board of Supervisors ran into a lot of people who didn't want anything to change with the downtown. And for those of us that are small business people or, or business people that are in this community, you know that something has to be done there because with the bypass, you diverted what, 80% of the traffic that normally would come? I mean, it's all been diverted to the to the freeway. Right. So I think, tell talk a little bit about how um, you've got those, those conflicting viewpoints in Carson City, like the people who are, are very much interested in forward, move, forward movement and progress and bringing new business to the community and maybe courting those work, those warehouse workers um, and getting those businesses to put their, their, uh, their factories, their, their manufacturing facilities on the north end of town and then the, the additional housing. How, how do you guys strike a balance there? Well, I'll, I'll speak for myself um, and kind of walk through how I make planning decisions for the city. Uh, and generally at the city level, we have a five-year planning horizon, a 20-year planning horizon, and a 40-year planning horizon. So we're doing our immediate five-year rolling goals, uh, and then we also have longer-term planning windows for capital improvements of 20 years and 40 years because traffic studies and, and capital improvements, you really need to plan them out that far, especially because most projects, municipal projects, are done with bonding, and bonding generally is 20 years, sometimes it'll be 30 years. So that's kind of your, your timing. Um, but the way I make decisions is that I gather all the data, all the factual data, and study it, make sure that I meet with staff or whoever the third parties, stakeholders are involved, and then I make decisions based on that long-term planning horizon and what is going to be the best decision over the long term for the city, meaning that I'm not going to make a decision 
that is a short-term decision and sacrifice the long-term planning. What I'm looking for in development is quality, sustainable development, not just approve any project that comes along. Gotcha. And in the past, uh, in Carson City and in, and in a lot of cities, people get into we need growth. If you're not growing, you're dying. Right. And that is true to an extent, but it's not an absolute. You don't want cheap, gaudy, low wage generating development. You want quality, sustainable, long-term development. And we have gotten much better over the last six to eight years of sorting through projects and making sure that number one, we have a good mix of residential units and that we have uh, higher quality commercial development including a good example is that we're now going in the past we've allowed developers to do their own traffic studies and bring them to the city and show the impacts of their development on the roads based on their traffic study gotcha so if i'm a developer and my project is within the vicinity of a school district and it's going to create traffic that impacts a school, you're required as the developer to do um, one of the impacts would be you have to measure the traffic sometime between 7 and 9 a.m. The idea being you want to catch the traffic going to school. So if I'm a developer, I'm going to have my guys out there at 645 counting cars, right? not at 845 when everybody's taking their kids to school. Right. I've now complied with the requirements of the traffic state, but have I have I actually accurately measured the traffic impacts? No. I have not. Right. So we're going to go to a city-generated traffic report. We're going to hire a consultant who will do the traffic study citywide, and all developers will come in, and we will provide the traffic study, and they will then have to uh, work off of our data. And so we'll have measured the potential impacts, and then we will charge them back for any impacts that their development will have on roads, fire, schools, anything of that nature. That's smart. Yeah. And, and that smart. when you charge the developer back, the idea is that that covers the cost of hiring that consultant so that the city's not taking on those those expenses? Uh, to us, well, we will try to cover the cost of that consultant, but it's more about getting the pro rata share of the expense of, a, of an, a required improvement that is a future required improvement, such as a traffic light. So development A may be built on a corner, and that doesn't require a traffic light. But development B that will go in next door because development A was built comes in. Now they generate enough traffic that it now the warrants for the traffic light are met. So now you have to put in a traffic light. But we didn't, we didn't go to that first developer, developer A, and say, you have to pay your fair share. We're trying to stick the whole bill on developer B and anybody that comes along afterwards. Right. So now what we're doing is we're telling developer A, we don't build the traffic light today, but you do have an impact. We're going to measure the pro rata impact, and then you're going to be on the hook for that percentage of this improvement when it has to be built in the future. With the idea that that maybe that will um, inspire full, further develop development without the fear of having to pay for too much in terms of it's, so the infrastructure. city doesn't get stuck with the the whole bill. Oh, because otherwise the city would be stuck with then the city has developer to build A's the pro rata share. Right. Okay. Right. So it's just a way of doing long term planning and trying to recover cost. 
So again, from my perspective as a supervisor, as opposed to my perspective as a realtor, what I'm looking at is is trying to make the the business or the the city run more like a business and look at the long-range impacts and make sure that everything we do, that we're building sustainable systems. So when you look at the long-range impacts, what are those critical success factors that you use? Is it, um, you know, attracting businesses to the area? Is it, you know, citizen happiness or um, city uh, revenue? What, what, what do you look at primarily? For sure, don't ask every citizen if they're happy, though, right? Because that won't... <laughs> Surely it can't be that one. <laughs> Are you guys happy? Right. Um, yeah, I, I, that's a whole other podcast, too. <laughs> <laughs> so you look, you look at a lot of factors. Um, you look at sustainability. You look at affordability. What can the city afford? You look at state and federal requirements, NRS and federal law. So there's a whole checklist of things that you have to go through to be able to measure what the impacts are going to be. And then at the end of the day, you have to look at, does this bring something, a benefit to the city? And that goes back to my comment that you don't need any development. You need quality development. So in other words, what we do well here. We have a lot of military manufacturers. We have a lot of machine shops. Uh, we have a lot of medical. Um, there are things that we're never going to be good at, which is distribution. Mm. Um, you, you know, we're not going to do agriculture well here. That's Douglas County. That's maybe right. Lyon County. But Carson City doesn't really have any agriculture. So should we be looking at those type of companies when they come here? And examples would be we had a yogurt manufacturer that looked here, and city staff spent almost two years working with them, trying to see if they could make this work. And I could have looked at that deal and said in five minutes, this deal is never going to happen. This company is never going to move here because we don't have the water that they need, and we don't have the tr- treatment capacity on the sewer side. I mean, that was, that was five minutes of due diligence. And at the end of the day, all they did was use all the information that they had Carson City staff provide to them to go back and renegotiate at their primary existing location. Wow. Uh, so wow. It's, it's things like that where uh, it really helps to have a, a real estate, commercial real estate background at the city level because sometimes, you know, staff, they... They don't really know what they're, where they stand. They're kind of in no man's land. They want to make sure that they're being business friendly and that they're working with every company. And sometimes we don't need to work with every company. Yeah. We need to work yeah. with the right, right companies. Yeah. But they're in a position to where they need to be nice to everybody. And I can step in and say, I can direct staff and say, okay, we're all done talking to this group now because they're not, uh, it's not feasible for them to ever locate here. Right. Well, and I mean, I feel like a part of what makes that uh, realistic is the cooperation and the, the friendliness between all of the rural counties in northern Nevada. You know, we have that relationship with Douglas County, I feel like, to say, why don't you go talk to these folks down here? Because they might ha- they have the water that you might need. That's, that's actually a, a great comment because 15 years ago, the rural counties all uh, were in the middle of a big turf war, especially Carson City and Douglas County when they built uh, all the stores down on Topsy Lane. Douglas County did that 
to drain sales tax revenue from Carson City, which they did, but yet then we had to provide all the services because it was right on the county line and Douglas County didn't have any infrastructure there. Right. So we got stuck with the service bills and they got all the tax revenue. Since that point, the rural counties and especially Carson, Douglas, Lyon, Story, and Churchill, we have gotten very good at working cooperatively and we have several coalitions, whether it's um, to lobby the legislature. We have what we call the four county legislative coalition. Okay. So we all get together with our lobbyists and our city managers and county managers, and we all come up with a single policy to go to the legislature with. And so that's the only way we can compete with Washoe County or Clark County. And so we have a very good record since we've done that of being able to stop bad legislation or get the legislation that we would like to see in place. We also uh, cooperate regionally on infrastructure, so water and sewer. You know, we have the Minden water that comes up through Carson and is now going, it's out to Dayton, and we want to take it out to Stagecoach and eventually Silver Springs. So it creates a way for us to move water back and forth in an emergency for wildfire or development or if infrastructure goes down. So we're trying to put in all these redundant cooperative systems so that we, meaning the rural counties here, can be kind of a force to be reckoned with. Well, and actually, and I I think that role there, that relationship politically is going to prove in the next two two to three years to be super important. It is because Clark County is the, you know, 800-pound gorilla. Yeah, it's a juggernaut down there. Right, so they have a minimum of, of 60% of the legislature at any given time. That's statutory that they have at least 60% of every right. committee, right. of everything. Washoe County, although they're in the north, they care about Washoe County. Right. They don't really care about Carson City or any of the other rurals. Right. So we either need to cooperate or we're going to get left out of every conversation. Right. Which which ultimately means anything when it comes to, you know, manufacturing, business development, housing development. Um, well, or more importantly, allocations out of the state budget. Right, right. Wow, yeah. Your job sounds incredibly complicated. The city, I mean, like, do you, how many people run, do you run into on a daily basis that say, like, oh, yeah, I could do that. This is the easiest job ever. Well, you only get a hand people, uh, handful of people that, that say that. What I get every day is people coming up going just the opposite, which is I couldn't do that, so I'm really grateful that you have stepped up to do that. That's awesome. That's awesome. I, don't, I don't know that the job is that hard. You have to be able to read and have comprehension, and it takes maybe a year to kind of get up to speed on issues. Sure. But after that, sure. it's just like anything else. You're just reading the data, you're analyzing it, and then you're trying to meet with all the stakeholders and come up with a solution. So as long right. as you're as long as you're fairly moderate and you're not at one end or the other of the political spectrum. Right, right. Then I mean I I think it hasn't been that difficult to get things done. You basically have to be able to count to three. That's the secret in oh, politics. Okay. Count to three. <laughs> wow. that Just not to have, overreact. Well so Lyon County, uh, Douglas County, Carson City, they have five member county commissions or board of supervisors. Right. 
and you have to have a majority vote to get something done. So, so you, you count to three. Count to so three. Count to three. Right. That's it. What steps would you recommend to somebody who's looking to get involved in local government? Do your research. Understand what the job is. I thought I had done that. When I decided to run for supervisor, I actually spent five years researching it, which is a lot of time to research it. And I actually right. went to a government-sponsored class that kind of ran you through what you would have to do and the impacts on your family. Uh, and Mal, you know, you've seen the impacts <laughs> to family. You know, you, you've been a, a subject to it. I can, I can attest to the, the hours spent, you know, supposedly on vacation and actually Brad's in the hotel room trying to read through the material for the next meeting. That's well, something but that beyond people that, really think what about. I meant was that the, sometimes the personal attacks against family members, you've been subject to personal attacks. Well, people attack me people, anyways. Right. <laughs> But you deserve that. But I'm talking about... Because, yeah, don't be such an easy yeah, target. Right. Yeah, I'm controversial anyways. I, mean, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> but for you to be attacked because of your affiliation to me is, you know, it's, it's not reasonable. Um, so, you know, there are these, these things that you may not anticipate. I talk to every living mayor. I talk to every living supervisor that I could find. I talk to all the department heads. Uh, the city manager. I mean, I talked to a lot of people and spent a lot of time to make sure I understood what the job was, and I still didn't really have any comprehension of sure. what it takes, which is a lot of hours and a, and sure. a lot of time. Well, I think anything in, in public service will actually take it back to what we kind of first started talking about. When you make the decision to do something, if you make if, if you go into the thing saying, I'm going to do this part-time or it's really, you know, I mean, you have, I think you have to give 100% of yourself to it because you do have the better interest of a community relying upon the decisions that you're making day in and day out. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good observation. I agree with that. And I would say that, you know, I get asked all the time, why? Why did you go into politics? And... You know, I've been very blessed in this area. Um, I've had successful businesses for almost 35 years. You know, Carson City's been good to me. Sure. And if you have the ability, then I think you kind of have an obligation to try to give back. It's the whole yeah. thing. If you believe in karma, yeah, you've got to plant the seeds to sow the crop. And so yeah. for me, it was a matter of, the city has been good to me, so I need to give something back, and that's what I've tried to do. And I saw a need because with Shelley Aldean, whose place I was taking, stepping off the board, she was the voice for the business community. She's also a commercial realtor. Right. And so I, there was a need for somebody of my particular skill set on the board to keep the city business-oriented and... You know, I will be off the board at the end of next year, and there is a need for that voice to continue. Right. So hopefully somebody is going to step up with a business background so that that right. voice continues to be represented. And, in fact, here's where I would call out the realtors. The realtors have not been good at putting forth candidates to represent their industry. They are very good at raising money through PSF, through lobbying when we hired Carrera Nevada, which is now back maybe 13, 15 years ago. Sure. Uh, that was a great move. And yeah, that they're changed, great. That really changed the way uh, our success uh, in, in dealing with the legislature. But we're not putting forth the candidates. And this has been a problem in Washoe County. The development community and the realtor community are not represented on the county commission. 
And so they are always fighting the county commission and the city councils because nobody understands their industry. Yeah. So it's really incumbent upon the development community and the realtors to promote themselves and get some candidates in line to run for office. And I think that we saw the repercussions a little bit of that with Douglas County, um, with the, the decision to do the fire sprinklers in, uh, in residential new construction. And I think that had there been, a, a, and the, you know, the realtors tried, in, you know, in an effort to, to come forward, but uh, kind of like you said, a lot of times it's too little too late. You need somebody that's there on the front lines talking about how prohibitive something like that is to the average, you know, resident of the county who just, you know, finally saved up all of my money. I, I can apply for a loan. I can start construction. I'm so excited. And now I find that I've got to put in this whole expensive right. system. Right. Here's another $35,000 bill for sprinklers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, right. And, and, you know, you, those numbers get thrown around really flippantly, but when you put it in terms of what the community actually, like what the average person in the community actually has to experience in order to save that money, it's, you Well, know. and there's a bigger underlying issue. First, I want to comment that, uh, that I think that you kind of hit the nail on the head there. I have reached out to the realtors when I hear about these issues starting to boil to the surface. Sure. And... If I wasn't sitting on the Board of Supervisors, I think that you would get the information too late to be able to do anything about it, and I think that's exactly what you saw happen down in Douglas County. Yeah, yeah. There's a bigger issue with fire sprinklers in particular, and this has been one of my uh, kind of hot buttons over the years. We don't have enough water supply to put sprinklers in every building. Yeah. yeah, we don't have enough water. Yeah. So when the fire department, and no offense to the fire department because they're just trying to do their job and, and, of course. and of public course. safety. They're concerned about public safety, but I keep asking them, where are you going to get the water to do this? Because we don't have it. It doesn't exist. So, you know, we need to come up with the balance. Right. So it's it's been a struggle, and it keeps coming back. The fire sprinklers come back every year. The International Building Code is now in the 2018 International Building Code that all new construction requires sprinklers. So, you know, it, it, we're eventually going to get to the point where all new construction is going to require it, and that's going to be probably in the next three to five years. Have they talked about foam? I mean, like, has that ever been discussed, like some type of, like, retardant, the uh, same way that... Chemical foam? Yeah. yeah. There, there are... There are dry systems that use chemical foam, but they're more expensive. So there so, you go. So there You're, you go. Now yeah. it's going to be more expensive. Right, right. And if that's the if the cost objection is so prevalent, I've uh, I have friends who are trying to build now. They have to change all of their plans because they're not going to conform. So well, yeah. well, yeah, you run into all kinds of issues with the size of the structure. And where it triggers right. the installation of, of fire, so you, fire sprinklers. So you may do what you consider a small addition, but then it puts the size of your overall improvements to a point to where they're required. Right. So now you're 100. We had a, actually had a case where somebody was doing a, a hundred foot addition, which then triggered fire sprinklers for the whole structure. Which means, oh my which gosh, it was, yeah. it was over a hundred thousand yeah. dollars. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. For a hundred square foot addition. Yeah. Well, you better so, really like that 100-square-foot edition. I hope it was <laughs> something, something really good. good. Yeah, <laughs> really, really good. Well, something that I feel like isn't really considered is that, you know, at that 
once you install sprinklers, you also have to have the fire riser. You have to have them installed on an annual basis or inspected on an annual basis. There's other costs associated with sprinklers outside of just, you know, the additional installation. You know, it's not just, let's just add this one little component in construction that seems so easy. There's all these, you know, recurring costs. There's that. And then the fire danger in this area generally is from the urban wildfire interface area, meaning it's that buffer zone between the interior city and then the hills, the sagebrush, the more rural areas from wildfire. And, you know, fire sprinklers don't stop wildfires. Right. So to a certain extent, it's somewhat misdirected. I understand the safety issue with having fire sprinklers, especially in multifamily properties. Of course. But generally speaking, I think there's a little bit of misdirection here and and that they're not as necessary for fire safety as as it is made out to be because generally the fire danger here is from outside in, not inside out. Right, right. I'm probably going to get in a lot of trouble for saying that. A lot of... uh, (laughs) But, but, you know, I think it it is something that, that, you know, to exactly to your point that you know we the realtors you know the, at least the conversation needs to be had the discussion needs to be had because if, ultimately if if that voice isn't present and I think what it's especially we live in a in a day and age and we've been discussing it a lot we talked about it with on our last episode with Cheryl Smith mm-hmm. that the voice of the realtors you know the the National Association of Realtors was founded to protect the public from right. people who were trying to take advantage of them when it came to purchasing real property. And those people, the the people trying to take advantage, haven't gone away. They've they've morphed and changed as laws and regulations get passed. But I think the discussion is so important for us to to have and for the realtors to be a part of, because ultimately we are the people who are watching out for the private property rights of the people in our community. You're right. That's I, the institution. And I think that that's been one of the major. Um, reasons for realtors' success over the years is that they're not advocating on their own behalf. They're advocating on their clients' behalf. Right. Where most lobbying groups are advocating on their own behalf. What's in it for me? Right. Well, for the realtors, they're not doing that. They're saying, okay, we are standing up for our clients, the property owners of, you know, of America, uh, and we're trying to protect their rights for them. Right. Because they're busy living their lives, so we're their voice. Right. It's super important. Well, Brad, thank you so much for, for coming thank in. Thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure. hugely, hugely enlightening. Um, it's a, a complicated picture, but I, we're good for the next two years, I think. So We're good for the next two years. <laughs> so, <laughs> I feel great. <laughs> um, well, thanks again, and um, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll see you later. Thanks. Thanks so much. Thank you again to Brad Bunkowski uh, for coming in and recording with us today. We hope all of you really, really enjoyed his uh, or our interview with him, and we hope that you got something out of it. We hope you learned as much from it as we did, because I mean, honestly, I learned a lot from it. Yeah, I, so. you know, me too. I, and I think that I have a whole new, renewed confidence in the planning and decision process that happens here in Carson City. I know as a realtor, I it's going to be really beneficial to tell my clients, you know look, this is 
all of this construction, all of this development, all of this work that's being done is being thoughtfully done. Right. And that there is that presence. And I think it is, you know, if I can give a little call to action out there to the realtors to continue to stay involved in both the planning aspect for our communities and, and also the political aspect for our communities. I think it, like, like Brad kind of touched on, that's so important to being part of the conversation so that you don't feel like later you have to come back and argue about it. Right, right. But I mean, also, I feel like I'm coming away from this conversation thinking we're in good hands. You know, I, yeah. I feel like, you know, the city's going to back. We're moving that. forward. And well, of <laughs> <Yeah>. course, <laughs> I might be a little biased, but still, I mean, I, I do feel like we're in good hands. I feel like yeah, we're moving in a great direction. I feel me like too. the future of Carson City is bright. And I mean, I feel like uh, you can buy a home and know that you're not going to lose its value for the next two years. Yeah. So what do that's you think? That's all you think, have guaranteed. But right. Just two years. <laughs> but that's still, that's great. That's all you can ask for. So what do you think, Mallory, is, is the five years out for Carson City? Like if you, I mean, cause you're, you're a young person and you've grown up in this community. What would you like to see from Carson City in the next five years? Well, that's a big question. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that after after this conversation with Brad, I would like to see more realtors getting involved with um, local government. And actually, um, I should I should kind of chime in and say that I actually sit on Carson City's Board of Equalization, which hears property tax appeals and actually is tied in very closely to real estate. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, um, oh, awesome. and it's I, it's it's a position that I really have enjoyed. I, um, I'm in the middle of my second term, so I've for, served for five years in this upcoming um, season, if you will, will be my sixth. And um, that's a perfect example of, you know, I don't sit on the board of supervisors, but I'm still involved in um, city government, and I'm still, um, I still, you know, I've got a pulse on what's going on, and I sure. at least in terms of property tax, and I really would encourage everyone out there to get more involved. Um, as far as sort of the economic climate of Carson City, I think that, um, WNC really does have so many good programs, um, to get people involved in, um, you know, different trades and that kind of thing. And it's not just about, you know, 18 year olds. It's not just about the 20 year olds. Like this is about really maximizing our, our workforce's ability and getting out there. And so I'm really excited to see where the city's going with that. Cause a lot of those programs are yeah. new. So I'm excited for what employment will do and that kind of thing. Yeah, me too. I think, I think I'm, I feel the same way that, that there's a lot on the horizon that can be very, right. Really, really exciting, especially I'm, I'm, you know, obviously I'm, I am a young family member. Um, I have a young family. I would love to see more young families be able to come here and enjoy Carson City, right. you know, growing up here and you, you grew up here too, right? I did grow up here. It's such a great place to yeah. grow up. It just, yeah. I mean, you have all of the, the benefits of small town living and all of the amenities close by. And I, what I tell all the people who are looking to purchase houses and they're trying to decide between communities, I always really push Carson city as an awesome landing zone. Like, yeah. like, because from here, you know, it, and everybody says the same, it's 20 minutes to the lake and it's 20, but it depends on where in the lake are you looking to go? Yeah. And like, what are you looking to do up at the lake? Well, we're also very close to the airport. So, you know, it's yeah. like, it's, it's a great place to, you know, have as your home base because you're, you know, close to you you can get out if you want to, yeah. if you want to leave. And the restaurant scene is evolving. The entertainment right. scene is evolving. Right. And I think, so I, that's what I'm really hopeful for is, is that more affordable housing that comes into the area means that there's a lot less pressure on, uh, single family uh, homes that, yeah. that younger families can start to afford them and and feel yeah. like, you know that 
weight has been lifted off their shoulders because it's it's not pretty out there for a first time home buyer. It really is. It, it's, <laughs> it's not. Really, well, it's and tough. Then you know the other side effect of that is that I feel like as uh, as development continues and we continue to grow, that um, you know Carson, the lines between Carson City and and Minden and and Carson City and Dayton will become sort of lessened. Yeah. You know, homes will get closer. You know, yeah. and, and to have those city those city lines kind of grayed out, I think will be a really positive thing to kind of you know, blend those communities together and, and offer a lot of the, a lot of the amenities that each one has to offer, you know, to every community. Right. Right. Well, and especially, you know, every, I think almost unanimously in all of those counties, you get a lot of people that are saying, we don't like that Vegas has the, as much control over the state right. and the way the state's going. And so it's really, it's kind of, it's unity. Yeah, right? exactly. And it's, it's joining forces to make sure that that voice is heard. Not that the voice in Vegas doesn't matter and not that, you know, it the, certainly the people, does. A lot of people you know, they're there. Nevadans as well. And, yeah. and obviously that's important. But I think that the answer to how do we get more of what we want done in the in the rural northern counties the, the answer is, is like Brad was talking, is that unity. And that I think, unity, exactly. Yeah, I think I agree with you. I think it'd be really cool to see, you know, uh, and I think we're starting to see a lot of it. I live in Dayton, but I work in Carson or vice Ex- versa right. or, you know, whatever. So right. that's really exciting. Well, we hope that you guys have all really enjoyed this podcast. Um, as always, please subscribe. Please get in contact with us. Leave comments. Let us know what you thought about this episode, what you'd like to see from future episodes. Yep. Um, Don't hesitate to reach out. Don't hesitate to reach out. Don't be shy. So we're really trying to do something for the realtor community um, and the communities that we directly serve. So we'd love to get your feedback um, and tell your friends. Yeah, tell your friends. Right on. Thank you, everybody. Thank you.